You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has to pass me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have already received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Thanks, George. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll uh, take a look. At that. Is it possible to move this microphone back a little and still have it pick me up? It's just uh, then it will obscure my notes a little bit less. Uh, that'll magically happen while I pray. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity uh, at Christmas time to uh, take some time to think and reflect. Uh, about this uh, most important event, uh, Christ your Son becoming a baby at Christmas. And we just ask that you would watch over us now, uh, still our minds, uh, and warm our hearts by the power of your word. Amen. Thanks, guys. So why is it that God the Son became a baby at Christmas? This Christmas at DPC, we're exploring these three big questions, uh, and this is our third and final question. Why is it that God the Son became a baby at Christmas? Now, of course, in using that word, God the Son, I'm introducing something kind of quite wonderful, quite mysterious, quite deep uh, about what we believe as Christians, uh, that we believe uh, that God is Trinity, Right? That God exists as one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Right? This is a wonderful truth. And the mind-blowing kind of claim that Christians make at Christmas is that God the Son, the second person of the God, the Trinity, actually became a baby. Right? Born in a manger in Bethlehem. And that's right at the heart of what John's got speaking about in today's passage. So if you take a look at verse 14, the very start of verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. The Word there being Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who became flesh, John says. He took on human flesh. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem. But why? Did God the Son become a baby just so that we could have a couple of extra public holidays or enjoy catching up with our family and friends, enjoying some extra special food and drinks or getting lots of presents? Is that why God the Son became a baby at Christmas? Well, not so much. I mean, those things are wonderful things. But at the start and end of this little passage we're looking at in verse 14 and verse 18, I think John tells us why it is that God the Son became a baby at Christmas. So if you look at verse 14, uh, the key word here is glory. John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory 
of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, what's that word glory about? I'll give you my definition of glory here. Uh, It's a visible kind of manifestation of the uh, greatness and goodness and grace of the God who is invisible. That's glory. A visible manifestation of the greatness and goodness and grace of the God who is invisible. So what's John saying? Well, why did God the Son become a baby at Christmas? To show us God's glory. To be a visible manifestation of God's goodness and grace and glory and, and, and uh, greatness. And I think that's confirmed at the end of the passage. If you look at verse 18, uh, John says, No one has ever seen God. Uh, but the one and only Son who, came, uh, who is himself God uh, and is in closest relationship with God, uh, the Father, has made him known. Right? This is the point of Christmas. God the Son became a baby at Christmas to make known the glory of God, to show us God's glory, to reveal God's glory. And so my kind of summary answer from these verses about why God the Son became a baby at Christmas, if you've got the online welcome card, you can look at that via our website. Uh, But God the Son became a baby at Christmas to show God's glory, to show God's glory more clearly to our heads and more vividly to our hearts. To show God's glory more clearly to our heads and more vividly to our hearts. So we're just going to take some time to think about those two ideas. uh, To show God's glory first, uh, more clearly uh, to our heads. Uh, That's because, like any of us, uh, I don't know, there's nothing more frustrating, is there, in someone having the wrong idea about who you are. You you want people to be clear on who you are and who you aren't. Uh, And God's no different He wants us to be clear on exactly who he is, clear in our minds. And so from verse 14 here, I just want to draw out six ideas to clarify how we see God. The first is God the Son became a baby at Christmas to show us that there actually is a God. There are plenty of people who would be kind of card-carrying atheists. They would say, well, there is no God and I'm sure of that. Other people aren't quite as sure, are they? That they would perhaps maybe say, well, I just don't know. They're agnostics. Plenty of people would say, well, if God does exist, maybe he does, but why doesn't he just show up? Why doesn't he make himself known? Why doesn't he do something miraculous or spectacular to prove that he exists? What would John say? He would say, he did it. The word became flesh. The spiritual entered into the physical. The eternal God entered into this temporal world of time and space. The creator of all things became a part of his creation. God became a baby. What more do you want from God? But he has showed himself in Jesus. The American astronaut James Irwin Uh, once said this uh, about his exploits in space travel. He says, The entire space achievement uh, is put into the proper perspective when one realises that God walking on Earth is far more important than man walking on the moon. This is an incredible claim that we as Christians make. Not only does God exist, uh, but that he became one of us to live and walk amongst us in Jesus. 
That's the first thing. The word became flesh. That shows us that God actually, that there actually is a God. And the second thing is that there actually is a God. Not just that there's a God, but that there's one God, not many gods. When I was at university studying a bit of kind of different religions and philosophy, I once heard a kind of parable about what all the different religions and forms of spirituality were like in the world. And the story is, as the person explained it, uh, that essentially all the different forms of religion and spirituality are are like a bunch of blindfolded people feeling around on different parts of an elephant, either the elephant being spirituality or God or or however you want to term it. And so one person with their blindfold on is feeling the ear of the elephant. And they say, you know, I think God is a fan. Another person feels the trunk of the elephant. They say, no, 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 God's more like a rope. Another one feels the swishy table, the tail of the elephant. And they say, no, 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 God's more like a, like a reed blowing in the wind. And the point being that, that all the forms of religion and spirituality, no matter how many gods or what type of gods, they're all essentially the same. They're just coming from different angles or perspectives. Now, of course, the, the underlying assumption of that parable is that the elephant can't speak. Right, the elephant can't say to the blindfolded people, hey, wait a second, I'm not a fan, and I'm not a reed blowing in the breeze, and I'm not a rope, I'm an elephant. This is who I am. And John would say, yeah, that's a wrong assumption. Not because there's such a thing as elephants that speak, uh, unless you've read Narnia Chronicles, and then, yep, uh, but that's a different story. But because there's such a thing as a God who speaks. I notice what John says here, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. He's saying that the the, the one true and living God has revealed himself by speaking to us. And just like we reveal ourselves to one another by speaking to one another in our words. And the one true and living God has revealed himself fully and finally in Jesus, the word of God who is the definitive, visible manifestation of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, John says. So there is a God who exists. There is a God who exists. A third, a God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God is willing and able to be active in his world, in this physical world. Uh, there might be some people who would say, well, well fine, maybe God exists, uh, but he, he just kind of, oh, sorry, I, I missed a point of my, uh, let, let me skip back because there's one other point I want to make, uh, which is to say that the God exists outside this physical world. That's really about the word became there. The word became flesh. Right, John's saying that the, Jesus, the, the son of God, existed outside the physical world uh, and then he became physical. If you scan back to verse 3, if you've got all of John chapter 1 open, you'll see there that John's already made the claim that Jesus, the word of God, made everything. So he made the entire physical world, but he's not a part of the physical world. He's separate to the physical world. He's outside the physical world. Now, that's not a view of God that absolutely everyone in the world shares. There are plenty of people who would believe that if there is a God, he's not a kind of personal God who exists outside the world, 
uh, but, but, but he, the whole world in and of itself is God. John says, no, that's not the view of God that Jesus reveals to us. Jesus reveals to us a God who exists outside the physical world, but in Jesus chose to become a part of his physical world. Which leads to the next point, which is that God is willing and able to be active in his world. Some people would say, well, fine, maybe there's a God who exists outside the physical world, uh, but it seems that he just got everything started and now he doesn't, he's either not willing or not able to get involved with the world. Just kind of started everything up. They see God as being a little bit like me, uh, maybe setting up my kids uh, outside on the, in the backyard playing a game. Uh, and no matter how much kind of hair pulling and name calling and, and kind of pushing and shoving of the different kinds, I just leave them to it. You know, I got them started and I will not and I'm not going to intervene to fix things up. Right? Some people see God like that. Right? But, but even me, as a kind of very imperfect dad, that's not what I'm like. Right? If I think I can intervene and do something to stop my kids hurting one another, I do. And that's what John's saying God has done in Jesus. But he's not saying that God intervenes in any and every situation to stop absolutely no one getting hurt. He's not saying that. But he is saying that God sees the mess that we as human beings have made in the world and he has intervened in the ultimate way in becoming flesh in Jesus, his son, to bring about the ultimate solution to the mess that we've made in dealing with our sins on the cross. God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God is willing and able to be active in his world. It also shows us that God considers this physical world to be good, very good. Now, that wasn't a given. In John's day, when he was writing his gospel, uh, he was writing amongst the Greek culture and the Roman culture, and they essentially thought that if you wanted to be really spiritual, what you had to do was escape the physical body and escape the physical world. The physical body was bad. It was unspiritual. It was unclean. It was impure. It was the source of everything bad in the world. That was what they essentially believed, and that's uh, also uh, essentially what Buddhism believes. Buddhism says that the ultimate goal in nirvana or enlightenment is to so detach yourself from the physical pleasures of this world that one day you would escape the physical body into nirvana, into enlightenment. That's not Christianity. The God that we see in Jesus is a God who says that the physical world is very good. Remember, at the very start of the Bible, God created the physical world. He created our bodies. And he said that all of it was very good. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, what does God do? He puts his money where his mouth is. He says, I'm not just saying that the world is uh, physically good or that the body is good. I'm prepared to take on flesh. To take on a physical body. 
Oh, what a glorious thing. As you sit around the Christmas lunch tomorrow and you smell uh, various kind of smells of of Christmas lunch and you see glorious sights and you experience the the beauty of giving loved ones a hug and, and the wonder of physical touch, what a wonderful thing to have a God who says that physical stuff is good. Who says our bodies, everything that we experience through our bodies is good. Like God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God considers this physical world to be good. And finally, God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God is both relational and loving. There are other kind of forms of spirituality or or different religions, Uh, maybe Islam, for example, uh, who would say that at the heart of reality is one solitary God. Allah in Islam, who rules over everyone and everything. Uh, he's by himself, a solitary God uh, to whom everyone should submit. Uh, so the word Islam means submission to the will of God. Now, I'm, not, I'm just contrasting things here, right? But, but uh, Islam essentially says that at the heart of reality is power, a powerful God to whom everyone should submit. That's not the same as Christianity. Christianity says at the heart of reality is a God who is love. Father, Son and Spirit who have always lived in in relationship and and community with one another. Those are quite different conceptions of God. Uh, One, of course, the God of Christianity is powerful, uh, but because his essence is love, how does he use his power? By laying down his life for us on the cross. Yes, he demands that we surrender our lives to him, but only after he surrendered his life for us. Right? God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that the God at the heart of reality is relational and loving. God the Son became a baby at Christmas Uh, to show us his glory more clearly in our minds. God's really keen that that we see him uh, with greater accuracy and sharpness, clarity. I think no matter who you are, you've got an idea about who God is. Even if you don't believe there is a God who exists, that's an idea about God in your mind. And I reckon most of our ideas about God are a little bit stuck in those funhouse mirrors. I don't know if you ever, when I was a kid, we always went to the Bendigo show, and I'd go into the funhouse, and they had those mirrors, and you look in one, and it makes you really thin, and another one makes you really fat, and another one makes you all distorted and out of whack. All our views of God are a little bit like that. They're a little bit distorted, lacking clarity, lacking accuracy. And God actually cares that we see him as he really is. He showed us his glory. He wants us to see in our minds more clearly what he is, who he is, and who he isn't. But of course, it's not just about that. That sounds a bit dry and intellectual, doesn't it? God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas is all about clarity and accuracy and getting details right. It's not just about that. God wants us to see his glory in such a way that, it comes, that he comes alive in our hearts and that he captures our imaginations, that he stirs up our passions and our affections to love him and enjoy him and delight in him. 
That's why God shows us his glory. So I just want to unpack four truths from verses 14 to 18 uh, to show us just how glorious God is. The first is God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God wants to identify with and understand our full human experience. Some people might say, look, maybe I could be persuaded that God exists. But what difference does that make? God's a distant and and disinterested God who's completely unfamiliar with the daily reality of my life. And we can feel that at times. But that's not the the picture of God that, that John shows us here. right? He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Some of you might remember that that word dwelling uh, literally means that God pitched his tent among us. It goes back to the story of Exodus that we were looking at at DPC earlier this year. Remember, God's people, Israel, are set free from Egypt. They're journeying towards the promised land. And while they're in the wilderness, they live their lives in tents. They pitch their tents. And so in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, when God asks his people to build a dwelling for him, a house for him. He asks them to build a tent. Now, why is that? Now, on one level, it's just about practicalities, isn't it? It's hard to build much much of a permanent house in the wilderness. But it's more than that. It's God saying, I want to identify with my people. I know that my people are living their daily lives in tents, So if I'm going to live amongst them, I want to live in a tent too. He wants to enter into their experience so he can relate to them. And that's what's going on here in John 1 verse 14, right? God knows that we live our daily lives in these physical bodies, these tents as it were, that are not our permanent homes forever, just for our homes while we live our lives in the wilderness of this world. And God, when he became one of us in Christ, wanted to identify with our experience of living our lives in these bodies. Jesus became truly human. So if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, what do you see? You see one who is truly human. One who gets tired and hungry and thirsty. Who gets sad, who weeps, who grieves, who is tested, who is tempted, who is betrayed, who is rejected, who suffers. One who actually understands what it means to live a human life in this broken world. But what a joy. Our God is not distant or disinterested. In Christ, he has entered into the mess of this world. He knows what it is to live a full human life. A second, God the Son becoming a baby at Christmas shows us that God wants to draw near to us in all our mess, our sin, and our brokenness. Now, plenty of people say, well, look, maybe, maybe I could come at the idea that Jesus is God. But in the end, he only really became, uh, took on flesh to draw near to people who were particularly good or moral or righteous, people who were religious, people who went to church, you know, those kind of people. Not to an average Joe like me whose life is full of flaws and brokenness and sin. Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. But John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Who's the us there? It's not special religious people who are particularly good. It's everyone who lives in in what John calls the world, just a couple of verses earlier. The world being sinful and broken and flawed and messed up human beings uh, and the kind of sum total of everything that we create together. That's the world in John's Gospel. So what's John saying? A Jesus drew near to us in the midst of all our sin and rebellion and brokenness and mess. And isn't that what you see? If you haven't read a gospel, uh, one of the biographies of Jesus' life uh, in the Bible, what you see when you read that is not that Jesus draws near to people who are particularly good, but that Jesus draws near to people who know that they're not particularly good. And frankly, those are the people drawn to Jesus, are the people who are willing to humbly admit that they're just a flawed and broken and sinful human being in need of Jesus to help sort out their life. But God the Son draws near to us in all our sin and brokenness. Third, God the Son becomes a baby at Christmas uh, to show us that God wants us to see and experience the fullness of his glory. Remember that glory, it's a visible manifestation of God's greatness and goodness and grace. I reckon when John's writing these verses, he has in mind the story of Moses up on Mount Sinai. You can read it later on, wonderful chapters, Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, uh, Moses says to God, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, oh, look, okay, this is in verse, uh, Exodus 33, verse 20. God says, okay, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see the fullness of my glory. You can't see my face. For no one can see my face and live. You see how that connects to John chapter 1, verse 14. It's pretty incredible when John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's John saying? He's saying, we've seen the full glory of God and we've seen it in the face, the face of Jesus Christ, the one and only Son who came from the Father. John's saying that Jesus is the visible manifestation of God's glory. If you want to see God, God's greatness, God's goodness, God's grace, then you look to Jesus. So it's no surprise that in verse 15, uh, John tells us that Jesus' greatness is greater than the greatness of John the Baptist. Take a look there in verse 15. John testified concerning Jesus. Uh, He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In John's culture, uh, typically if you were born first, you were considered to be of greater honour. You were greater. You'd surpass the people who were born after you. And if you read all the gospel accounts, you'll see that John the Baptist is born before Jesus. So really, culturally speaking, John the Baptist would have been considered to be greater. But John the Baptist says no. Why? Because of where John started his gospel. In the beginning was 
the Word. Before the beginning of time, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, already existed. So John can say, he surpassed me. His greatness is greater than my greatness. And that's because Jesus' glory shows us the fullness of God's grace and truth. Later on, you should look up Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God finally shows his glory to Moses. And this is what we read. The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Excuse me, I've just got to skip my page. Ah! All good. Amounting in love and faithfulness. Uh, maintaining love uh, to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet, the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children uh, uh, for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And I won't be able to answer all the, the questions that you might have about those verses. But what I want you to see is that when Moses gets a glimpse of God's glory, what does he see? He sees a God who is full of grace and truth. A God who is full of grace, in that we're told that he does not give sinful people like us what we deserve. He's a compassionate and gracious God. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. A God who forgives people for wickedness and rebellion and sin. He's a God who is full of grace, not giving sinful people what they deserve. And yet, he's a God who is full of truth. A just God, a righteous God, a God who is fair, who will not leave the guilty unpunished. So how is it that these two kind of threads come together? How, how is it that tension is resolved? How is it that God can show grace to sinful people like us and yet still punish sin as it deserves? And John says it's in Jesus. In Jesus, who is the embodiment of the glory of God that is in Exodus 34. Jesus, who's full of grace and truth. You see, in John chapter 17, verse 1, you can look it up later, but, but Jesus prays to his Father. He says, Father, glorify your Son. Father, show the world the fullness of your glory through me. And God, and God the Father answers the prayer of his Son. He glorifies his Son. How does he answer? How does he glorify his Son? By his Son giving his life on the cross. You see, it's at the cross of Jesus that we see the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of God's grace and truth, and the fullness of God's truth, in that at the cross, uh, God, uh, Jesus, bears the punishment of death that we deserve for our sins. Right? For, for rejecting God, the source of all life, God does not leave the, uh, leave the sin unpunished. The fullness of God's truth, and yet the fullness of God's grace. Because it's Jesus who willingly bears that punishment of death in our place. 
bearing what we deserve so that we can receive what we don't deserve. We can be welcomed into God's family as his children, as John said back in verse 12, having the right to be called children of God. You see, in the end, Jesus uh, willingly took on flesh at Christmas because he knew that one day he would have to willingly give his flesh in our place on the cross. This is the full cost of God's grace to us, welcoming us as his children. That grace to us is completely free to us, of absolutely no cost to us, but it was of infinite cost to Jesus who took on flesh at Christmas, that he might give his flesh at Easter. Why is it that God the Son became a baby at Christmas? It wasn't just so that we could have a couple of extra public holidays or enjoy delicious foods or have wonderful Christmas lights. Those are great things to enjoy. But God the Son became a baby at Christmas to show us his glory to show us his glory more clearly to our minds and more vividly to our hearts. And that second part of God's glory touching our hearts, coming alive in our hearts, is absolutely critical. I hope you might meditate on this more this Christmas. The American theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, there's a world of difference between knowing that honey is sweet in your head and actually tasting that honey is sweet. That's what God wants for us. He doesn't just want us to understand his glory accurately in our heads, but to actually taste of his glory, taste of his glory in the goodness and greatness and grace that we receive from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, And we just ask, uh, Father, that you would... uh, open our hearts and our minds this Christmas uh, that we might see the glory of Jesus more clearly in our minds and experience the glory of Jesus more vividly in our hearts. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.